You ready to go? Let's read Isaiah 9-6 together. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Just a couple things I want to get out of the way as we get going, since repetition is the theme this morning. You might remember the first Sunday, Michael mentioned that the words in his name will be called are written in the singular tense, and that these four names that we have for Jesus effectively paint a picture of who he is in his entirety. So although these names are individual, they paint a complete picture of Jesus for us in his ministry to us. Now, last week, I started by talking about the outside world and how it influences us. I want to do the opposite this morning. I just want to dive in. And then when we wrap up at the end, I want to talk about that outside world and how it fits relative to Jesus as eternal Father. Let me begin by inviting you to take a look at a comment from Charles Spurgeon. Now, I found this in a, a sermon that he gave back in 1866 on this very verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, follow along with me. How complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Almost in the same breath, the prophet calls him a child and a counselor, a son and the everlasting father. This is no contradiction, and to us, scarcely a paradox. But it is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should at the same time be infinite. And he who was the man of sorrows should also be God over all, blessed forever. And that he who is in the divine trinity, always called the Son, should nevertheless be correctly called the everlasting Father. How forcibly this should remind us of the necessity of carefully studying and rightly understanding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. I got that out of a sermon, and I thought, I'm just going to read that and sit down. That's like enough to get us going. But here's what I'd like to comment about. Spurgeon is acknowledging that God spoke through Isaiah in just a few words to handle a really big idea. You see, God's words are perfect. They're perfectly insightful. They're always true. They're never an opinion. You see, they're his words, and he's the one true God. Now, Spurgeon's caution reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The writer there says, fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, there's this warning. Don't let the world or anything distract you. Don't be deceived by the world. And remember, the, the Hebrews writer also says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, Jesus, the eternal Father, is solely and exclusively governor of our faith journey. From before the beginning, throughout all eternity, and he warrants our complete attention as we discover that this morning. So let me dive in with it. Eternal Father in Hebrew is a word that can be translated either as eternal father or father of eternity. Now the eternal father translation seems to emphasize Jesus' role as a father. The father of eternity translation seems to emphasize Jesus' leadership over eternity. Two different things. Now, there's debate within the language scholar community on which is best. I throw into this hopper at the same time the term father by itself. We can compare that to another description for Jesus as God's, God the Son or God's Son. I want to start at this point 
by shamelessly borrowing one of Michael's regular statements, providing I say it well. I can't be bulldogmatic, that's Michael's words, there you go, Michael, that's for you, on which of these ideas is best. You know, as I see it, they're all worth considering. And certainly at this time of year, everlasting father, that idea, is a really good thing for us to take in. I want to lean on Charles Spurgeon one last time and show you one other introductory comment that's going to take us into our study this morning. Let me read for you from that same sermon. Our text, this is Isaiah 9, 6, has no bearing upon the position and titles of the three persons with regard to each other. You see, positions and titles aren't the point. It's not about how the triune Godhead works together in this particular text. Spurgeon says it does not indicate the reality of deity to itself, but the relation of Jesus Christ to us. He is to us the everlasting Father. You see, Spurgeon is declaring here that Jesus is the topic, but we're the object of this verse as everlasting Father. This name is exclusively focused on his role with us, and that's what we want to discover this morning. I want to pull back and just use a quick illustration as we start to think about Eternal Father, and I'm going to embarrass someone because I see him in the room here. Last Sunday after the service, Ray Mulliken stopped me to compare notes on this big idea of Jesus' name. He's sitting over here laughing with his arm around his wife, just saying. Now, for those of you that don't know Ray, wave your hand, Ray. Yeah, I see you, buddy. Lori, hi, good morning. So Ray and Lori and their kids attend here at Stonebridge, as you can see. Ray's one of the senior leaders at Brentwood Academy, so he's around students all the time. I'm going to paraphrase what he said to me with a lot of passion, by the way. Uh, he said that the highest priority for him, I think I'm going to get this right, Ray, is to get students to see the grandeur of God's universe, the immeasurable size and scope, and how it could not exist without a master designer. Man, that's a great I mean, I want my kids to hear that from Ray, my grandkids, really, because I am older, but not over 80. I'm good. I'm still young. Now, I admit, Ray's passion kind of took me back, and he was very animated and excited about it. Uh, I think we ended by both agreeing, it doesn't matter the generation, does it? It doesn't matter whether it's a student or it's us here in this room. We can all forget about the grandeur of God in his universe. And we get caught up in the mundane and the normal, and we miss the majesty. So, Ray, this one's for you. Here's an example. His are a lot better than mine, but this is the best I can do in the moment. I actually went back after the first hour, and Clay told me that I need to explain to people that this star I'm about to tell you about is Alpha Centauri. I didn't know that, so something else I learned. Well, anyway, scientists tell us that the distance from Earth to the nearest star outside our solar system is 2,100 billion miles. Big number. I mean, in my simple mind, it means the number 2,100 with 12 zeros after it. I mean, I don't even know if it, like, there's a name for that number. Now, these same scientists tell us it would take 10 years and 3 months to reach that nearest star if we could travel 225,000 miles an hour. Now, before you throw the scientists out the door, they chose the 225,000 miles an hour based on the speed that our spacecraft in the Mars mission is going to travel once it leaves the Earth's solar system and gets away from the gravitational field. It's kind of hard to believe that something could travel that fast. And that's interesting. I'm simple. 
so the example that works for me is how about I'm traveling in my car at 60 miles an hour. To get to that nearest star outside of our solar system, it would take 125 million years at that speed. Now, why am I saying this? Well, when we consider a concept like eternal or eternity, we can't help but wonder about the immense size of God's universe juxtaposed against time, because those two things work together, don't they? And with that as a backdrop, I thought it might be helpful as we explore this idea of Jesus as eternal father to kind of put a definition around the word eternal. So this is my best effort at that. Some of you might have something better. Eternal means always lasting, without a beginning or an end. I would suggest that you think of eternal as existing outside of time. If something is eternal, it always is, it always was, and it always will be. It is important for us to understand that Jesus is not bound by time as we are. He is creator. And as creator, he created time. His creation, including time, serves him for his purposes. Now for us, a better way to say it for us might be we serve time. You see, time has control over our lives. That's not so for Jesus. And that's how we enter this idea this morning when we think of eternal. Now like Mighty Guard last week, eternal father is a really big topic. There are so many different ways to approach it. I'm going to take an approach that I think is really narrow by design, so we're just going to kind of topically hit some things relative to this to perhaps give you something to think about as you leave this morning. Now, I want to observe that God speaking through Isaiah is very brief and candid with this prophecy, this one verse that we are looking at. There's something about the directness that caught my attention. So I, I want to suppose to you three things that stand out for me about Isaiah and see if we can't use that as a framework to work. Isaiah is not confused. He hasn't confused Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, with God the Father. He is describing Christ's character when he says Jesus' name is Eternal Father. And he's establishing a principle that the New Testament writers confirm in the fulfillment of this prophecy. You see, Jesus is the image of God and no one can come to the Father except through him. I'd also suggest Isaiah's not complicated. He declares that Jesus, the child, the son to be born, the human being who is God, that second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus reveals to us the character of God the Father in the flesh. Here's the third thing. I don't think Isaiah is tentative about what he has to say. He's as certain of this name as he is the other three. I'd be so bold as to say he frames Jesus as a father who introduces man to eternity. You might even say he's the perfect father figure. So with that as a backdrop, how about we dive into these three things and just give them a quick look. Isaiah is not confused. You see, Isaiah speaks God's words given to him. And he does it in the Middle Eastern region of the world within a culture that is steeped with Jewish practices. Now, in this culture, the concept of father has multiple dimensions. It's not limited to the simple idea of a father who has a son or a father who has a daughter. A wise man can be referred to as the father of wisdom. A foolish man can be referred to as the father of folly. A king can be referred to as the father of the country. The quality of wise 
or foolish or king is ascribed to this man as though it were his child, and he's the father of it. You get the general idea here, how I frame this? It's a metaphorical framework. Now, there's also a Jewish custom at this time that the eldest son would be the father of the family in the absence of the father because he was the firstborn. Now, Jesus himself takes on this precedence on earth in human flesh. He represents God the Father on earth in his absence. Think of it this way. This is Jesus' Father office on earth when we speak of him as eternal Father. And you could say it this way. Jesus possesses eternity as an attribute of himself. He is the parent of it. He's not the child of eternity, as if eternity birthed Jesus. He is eternity's father. He was never not alive. Just as that idiom, the father of wisdom, implies that a man is preeminently wise, so the term father of eternity implies that Jesus is preeminently eternal. Now, this idea is consistent in the whole of Scripture, and I want to introduce you to some verses that are going to help us with that. So like last week, we're going to run through a number of texts. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, that would be great. We will put the text up here on the screen. So let's start with the first one. In the New Testament, Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, about Jesus' role in eternity. Here's how it goes. It is a trustworthy statement deserving Deserving full acceptance, Paul says. His emphasis is pretty clear here. He needs Timothy to trust him and accept what he has to say. Well, what is it that he has to say? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You see, this is Jesus' purpose to save sinners, of which Paul includes himself as one of those sinners. He's no different than you or I. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. What's the reason here for Jesus coming with this purpose? It was for him to apply mercy. In this case, Paul uses himself as an example, but the same thing would apply to us. And Paul describes Jesus as being patient with him because he brought that mercy to him even while Paul was his enemy, just like he does with us. But I want you to notice how the sentence ends. Paul says, as an example. It's as if he's speaking now of summing up what he has just said. And he says, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's statement indicates that Jesus has power over eternity. Those who believe in him for eternal life. Now, if I want to use that idiom idea, he is eternity's father. Now, there's also an interesting exchange between Jesus and some Jewish folks in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verses 52 through 58. And this further illustrates this idea of father of eternity. It begins with a challenge to Jesus regarding his power to give it, to actually give eternal life. Here's how the discussion opens in verses 52 and 53 of John 8. The Jews said to him, that's Jesus, now we know you have a demon. Now, if we were to read the passages prior to this verse, we'd find that there's all of this circumstances going on between Jesus and the Jews. His claims, things that he's doing, how he's posing himself as the Messiah come, and they got a problem with it. 
they draw a conclusion from that and they say, now we know that you have a demon. If we want to go to our own contemporary world, it would be like saying, you're crazy. That's how they are indicting Jesus. They go on. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Now, the Jews are challenging something that Jesus has said previously, that he has power over death. They're using Abraham as their example. They're making the point that, well, if Abraham followed you, why is he dead? Why didn't you keep him alive? They go on. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? You see, Abraham would be viewed as their spiritual father. He was the greatest of all time. He was the goat for the Jews. And he didn't escape death. They're saying to Jesus, you think you're better than Abraham? This is where we enter now the turn. Jesus replies pretty candidly, beginning in verse 54 at the end. Jesus answered, it is my Father who glorifies me. Now, let's not miss the point here. He's speaking of God the Father. This is who Israel says they worship. He says that it's the one they worship that glorifies him. Now, look at verse 55 at the front end. You have not come to know him, but I know him. Jesus is dropping the hammer on these guys. He's basically affronting them. This may be the greatest insult ever given by the master of the universe to these Jews. He's saying, you don't even know who God the Father is, and you say this is who you worship. Now, verses 56 through 58, he brings it to closure. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. You see, Abraham, who you claim to be your father, knew me, and you didn't even know that he knew me. And he was glad about knowing me, and you have no idea that this is the case. Well, the Jews have heard enough. And they say to Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? This is a statement of disbelief. It is not going to matter what Jesus says to them. Unless he allows them to understand, they will not. Jesus then takes the stand again and finishes with this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, this is where I want you to follow me. Jesus was there in the beginning before Abraham existed. That claim places Jesus in control of eternal life. He is either God or he's crazy. Those are the two options. Now, this is important to us. If he isn't eternal father, the one who controls eternity, the father of eternity, then he can't have authority over eternity. And if he doesn't have authority over eternity, he can't give it to us. You see, the gospel is dependent upon Jesus functioning as eternal father. And Isaiah is not confused. These words declare that. Jesus, eternal father. Let's take a look at the second idea. Isaiah is not complicated. Now, why do I say that? Well, to start with, he's pretty direct. 
He's very straightforward with what he has to say. And as a prophet, he speaks the words that God gives to him. Now, the Old Testament is pretty clear about what to expect from a person who claims to be a prophet. And I want to just look at that for a moment with you in case you're not familiar with it. Moses is given instruction by God centuries earlier about God's use of prophets and what to expect. And we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 21, if you want to look there. I'm just going to focus on two of those verses, verse 18 and verse 22. Let me read you verse 18. And the Lord said to me, that would be Moses, God speaking to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. Moses is the prototype prophet. God is going to form and use prophets in the future based on who Moses is. I will put words in his mouth, that would be the prophet, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You see, God the Father selects who will be a prophet, and that prophet is accountable to deliver God's word only, not his personal opinion. Just look at verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that's the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, this seems pretty simple on the surface. If it doesn't happen, he's not a real prophet. He isn't speaking on God's behalf. But a problem occurs when the prophecy is in the distant future and the people are gone before the prophecy is fulfilled. So in this case, we need to determine Isaiah has been making prophecies prior to Isaiah 9, and some of these things have come to pass. So he's already kind of warranted as a prophet in their midst. There's another way to look at it as well. At this time in Israel's history, there are multiple men serving as prophets, kind of overlapping each other in different ways. And they're all speaking about this coming king, about this son in the future. So there's a sense that God has painted a tapestry of prophets who are all focused on that future event. And they kind of validate each other. Now, there's a lot more to learn about prophets, and I want to suggest that this is the answer. And that wasn't really my point. Here's the principle that I would like to suggest that we take away just from this look. When it comes to God's word, our opinions don't matter. We need to work at understanding what God means by his words. Just like the prophets being true to God's word, so should we. We need to take his word seriously. The reality is our opinions are of little concern. Now, the gospel records in the New Testament are full of examples of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. And much of it is about Jesus. I want to just show you one that's unrelated to this morning's topic of Jesus as eternal father, but about Jesus rel relative to his birth. Look in Matthew chapter 2 and verses 4 through 6. Now here, Matthew recounts the common knowledge among the chief priests and scribes about where Messiah would be born. And he gets that from a prophecy that Micah made about 650 years earlier. Here's what he says in Matthew 2. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, the he who is, is inquiring is Herod. It's been a couple of years since Jesus' birth. There's all this talk about this king and all this power, and Herod's like, whoa, time out. I'm in trouble. So he wants to know where this king was born. And here's what the scribes and the priests say. In Bethlehem of Judea. 
For so it has been written by the prophet. This is Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now I want to suggest if we go back to Isaiah's case and his prophecy. God gave him those words 700 years before Jesus' birth. The people in that day would not see that come to fruition. But we have. Because we have the privilege of looking back at it. And we know that this prophecy is the fulfillment of Jesus' birth, his life. The description really even of his resurrection and the gospel in its entirety. You see, this name Eternal Father and its implications are spoken of throughout the New Testament. And this is just one example of that. Let me give you another in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16... We hear more about this eternity, this eternal Father. Let's just follow, follow along with me as I run through it quickly. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Whose kingdom is it? Jesus's. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What does the kingdom bring? Redemption for our sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Whose image is he? The invisible God. That's who the Jews would call God the Father. Sounds like the character of God in flesh to me when I read those verses. Paul finishes with this. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Jesus is the character of God in the flesh. He is creator. He comes from eternity. He is the exact representation of God the Father in the flesh. He is for us, eternal Father. Now, there's another example in John's gospel in chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. This is a little bit of a longer chunk of text, so let's just kind of look at it in pieces. Verse 22, at the time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, the portico of Solomon. Now, the setting's winter in Jerusalem. It's most likely December. It's at the time of the Feast of Dedication. That's another name for Hanukkah. You know, if you're practicing one of the Jewish holidays, it would be Hanukkah. Now, that's the celebration of the rebuilding of the temple. Big-time party. lasts for eight days. Jesus is walking around in what I would like to call the promenade. You know, there's the outer wall around the temple. There's this open area in the middle where all the business is transacted before the sacrifices go, before the treasury goes into the temple itself. He's in this area near this portico of Solomon, this arched area that's named after Solomon. Let's move on to verse 24. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, there was obviously anticipation about the coming Messiah. And news had traveled that Jesus might be him. Look at the tenor of the crowd. There's an urgency in it. There's an anxiousness to get to the answer. Just tell us plainly, the text says. Well, the scene turns, and Jesus answers them in verses 25 through 27. Here's what he says. I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus is candid. Remember I started by saying how candid Isaiah is? God's just so straightforward and so 
tight with what he has to say. Well, Jesus is God. He's candid too. There's a principle, huh? There's a consistency in the way that God speaks. He speaks so that we can understand. Jesus just said, I told you, you don't believe. Here's what he says next. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. He's saying to them, consider the miracles you've seen me do in my Father's name. Consider the teaching you've heard from me in my Father's name. Consider the time you've seen me spend with the people serving them in my Father's name. All of these things validate who I am. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. You see, something's missing for them. They aren't in Jesus' flock. They're not in his family. They don't see because they don't believe. Jesus goes on, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, if you were my family, you would be following me, not asking for more evidence. <coughs> now, the conversation comes to a climax in verses 28 through 30, and it's Jesus' closing statement. He says, I am the source of eternal life. Word for word, I give eternal life to them, those who believe. And you know what? It's forever. It's for eternity. It is eternal. They shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, no one. No way can you ever lose eternal life once Jesus has given it to you. Why is Isaiah not complicated? See, God ordained that we would understand these prophecies fulfilled. He told Isaiah to name Jesus Eternal Father. And then God worked his plan in the years and centuries later to make it evident that what he told Isaiah would be true. And I want to suggest to you, this is something that we could grasp. God is a truth teller all the time, every time. He calls us to trust him in his word. And then he gives us freedom to obey or not. You know, I think Christmas time is a great time to see Jesus for who he is as the eternal father, to see him as the one that's worth trusting no matter what is going on in my life, to see him as the one that's worth following because this is when we celebrate his birth. Now let's look at this last idea. It's going to be really quick. Isaiah's not tentative. He's certain of this name of eternal father, just like he is of the other three. You see, Isaiah takes God's word for what it is. It is absolute truth. Now, if you look at the Isaiah book, his entire prophecy, you would find that every time he gives a prophecy, he begins by acknowledging that these are God's words received by him from God, and they aren't his. You know, he's not tentative because they aren't his words. They're God's words. Make sense? Right? Now, a good illustration of this, and we don't have time to drill in, but I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 53. It's a seminal component of the prophecies of Isaiah. We typically look at this when we're, look, when we're in Easter and we're considering his death and resurrection, but sometimes we contrast it with his birth. To begin, I want to look at the very last verse of Isaiah chapter 52, and that is found in verse 15. Now, Isaiah introduces the prophecy about Jesus with the acknowledgement that it will take a special act of God for people to understand. Look at how he frames it. For what had not been told them, they will see. 
and what they had not heard, they will understand. There is a trust that Isaiah has with God even in the face of the unknown. And as he introduces the prophecy in chapter 53, in the first verse he asks the question, who believes the message he brings? Now these are God's words. Isaiah is God's vessel to deliver them. And yet he's a human being. He's wondering, like any of us would, who's going to believe this when I say it? Now here's something not to miss. God has not given him that answer. And yet he trusts God. I think there's a lesson for us in this, too. Do we trust God enough to act on his behalf without knowing what the result is going to be? Can we have that conversation with someone we've been putting off out of fear because we know we need to reconcile something or we need to work on something with each other? Can we share a word about the gospel of Jesus Christ to that person that God's been pricking us to without delaying and just act on it? See, I'm just saying, God wants us to trust him the way that Isaiah did. The language in chapter 53 validates for me the certainty of Isaiah, the lack of tentativeness. Now, what I've done is just picked out some of the big operative points in that chapter because we don't have time to go through it. Just follow me as I read them. This is about Jesus. He was despised and forsaken. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I mean, pretty direct language, wouldn't you agree? He was cut off out of the land of the living. The Lord was pleased to crush him. He would render himself as a guilt offering. I would observe that for a Jew, this would be hard language to hear. Their coming king who's going to rule the world is going to have this happen to him? The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. This is the language of certainty. There is no hesitation. Isaiah doesn't hesitate to speak it, even knowing that many people wouldn't believe. I think that this rings true for us. And it begs a question, are we tentative about our faith? Do we hesitate? When it comes to openly expressing the hope that's in us, what do we learn from Isaiah? Well, I'd say this. He received God's word just like we do. He believed it. He declared it to a nation of people who, for the most part, did not respond. His circumstances are no different than ours. See, Isaiah wasn't confused. These were God's words. Jesus would be named Eternal Father. He would be God in the flesh. God's character would be displayed in his humanity. He would be a father to the people. And Isaiah didn't complicate the message. He gave it just as God directed. There were no extra words. There were no rationalizations. He exclusively trusted God. He delivered God's words fully knowing that they may not be received well. His mission wasn't for his well-being. It was for the well-being of the people. And when he gave the name of this son as eternal father, he trusted God this was true. 
in a mysterious, miraculous way, this child that would come was in fact the father of eternity. He always existed. He always was. He always is. He always would be. He was not in time. He was time's creator. Isaiah wasn't tentative. Now, he might not have understood the implications of the message for the future, but it didn't matter. He lived in that moment. He trusted God completely in that moment. He believed that God's words were true and that they would come to pass. He was not his own spokesperson. He was God's. Because he was, we get to know his name will be called Eternal Father. Now, as we wrap up, I want to just ask you to think with me for a minute. At this time of year, Jesus, our eternal Father, is of special importance. You know, families gather for Christmas celebrations a lot during this season. But maybe you're part of a family that can't because of distance. Or perhaps your family's got relationship issues and there's fractures in your family. Perhaps you're a parent of young kids and just the pressure of raising kids brings stress during this time of year. I I don't know which of those is your circumstance, but in this room, they're all covered. You know, some of us have memories of a great father relationship. Others of us don't. But all of us are marked by some kind of a father relationship. You know, in my own life, my dad was one to be afraid of and to respect. But even so... He was an image of hard work and trying to do the right thing. I probably didn't understand that until I became an adult. Maybe not until I became a believer. I don't know. I don't know if that's your story. Or you have a different one of a dad that was just a great dad with you. Here's what I'd ask you to do. Set that aside. Try and turn it off for a minute. Put it over here to the side of you. And I want you to think about this with me for a second. Step back to me with Jesus. His name is Eternal Father. He takes his role as Father more seriously than any human father, past, present, or yet to come. At Christmas, we have the opportunity to consider him, to rejoice in him, to praise him who is named Eternal Father. He represents everything we need in a father. And he's always with us cares for us in our troubles. He's with us in our disappointments. He celebrates with us in our successes. Don't miss the blessing of Jesus, the eternal Father, this Christmas. You see, he's the one who gives eternal life. Now, I don't have a short list of three things for you to remember this morning. I have one thing, and it's really not my words. I want to ask you to consider Jesus' words about how seriously he takes being a father for you. And we find that in John chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. Here's what Jesus says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You know, that's a father that's got an eternal commitment to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. You know, that's a father that's always with you. That's an eternal father that controls everything. Because I live, 
you shall live also. That's the one who controls eternity, opens his arms and says, come to me, I am your father. This is the eternal father Isaiah speaks of. This is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the child, the son who came. Isaiah is not confused. We shouldn't be. Isaiah is not complicated. We don't need to complicate how we see Jesus. Isaiah is not tentative. We could use to learn the benefit of certainty when it comes to our faith. Isaiah says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Father, thank you for your word and how it enriches us. Thank you for your directness and how clear and certain your word is. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, who he is to us, who he has been, and who he will be in eternity. We praise you, God, for these words to us in Christ's name. Amen.